Welcome to Boiling Point. What can your teeth tell about you? Maybe how well you brush them, or in an unfortunate situation, what you ate in your previous meal. But for a paleontologist, teeth are a treasure trove of information, helping uncover new species and the ancient history of the Australian continent. Join us as we dig deep into the paleontology of the Australian mammals. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's me, your host, Ina. And our guest today is Antonia Parker. Antonia is a PhD candidate at UNSW, studying the paleontology of Australian possums. Welcome to the show, Antonia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, can you tell us about paleontology and, like, why did you choose to be a paleontologist? Sure thing. Um, paleontology is basically the study of ancient life it, we distinguish from archaeology is that sort of history and then paleontology is like prehistory um so yeah just all life like that which is obviously a pretty broad period but uh in terms of how i got into it i guess i was kind of a dinosaur kid like not entirely but i loved those little like sets where you'd carve out the dinosaur bones and stuff and i don't know as a child i just assumed that that was like not a real job which is bizarre because it obviously is and I got to uni and discovered that there were actual paleontologists and was like, oh, cool, I can, like, go back to, like, playing in the dirt. <laughs> I thought that was uh, pretty exciting, so I went for it. So dinosaurs get, the like, the spotlight of paleontology, right? Yep. But you study mammals and specifically possums. How, how did you choose something other than dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a bit what I fell into. I'm a... UNSW and we have a really good like mammal paleontology department people are kind of experts in uh and I mean the Australian animals are really cute I was keen to know a bit more about them and about their history especially given Australia's been sort of separated for and from Antarctica and therefore South America for about 55 million years so we have a really unique ev evolutionary history um and like sure the dinosaurs are cool but when there were dinosaurs roaming Australia Antarctica and South America were still connected to Australia, so they're not, like, as special. Whereas everything that's sort of evolved since then is just super interesting uh, and unique. And it turns out there are just, like, a lot of possums, both living ones and extinct ones. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of the groups just haven't been looked at in a while. So there's a lot of really interesting work to do, and that's what kind of got me into it. I'm, I'll get to describe a couple new species, which is pretty cool. And, uh, yeah. That sounds so cool. And like, how how do you even find a fossil? Um, is it like, do you know about fossil beds or do you just walk and stumble on a fossil one day? Uh, I think the way they're generally first found is, yeah, people just stumble across them and they're like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't done that. And it's probably good we're not relying on me to do that because I am <laughs> not very like perceptive all the time. But uh, yeah, now once we know about them, we can then go back and try and explore like, how far does this deposit stretch? Like, what can we, like, sort of, you know, is, is this just, like, a one-off? Is this something that's been washed down a stream, say? Because people find, like, fossils along, like, stream beds sometimes. Like, is this just being washed down a stream? Or is this, like, a bigger deposit where there's, like, a lot of bones that have been washed down this stream? Or is there perhaps a deposit further upstream that this bone has eroded out of that we could go and uh, have a bit of an explore with? And I know, yeah, for 
uh, Riversley, the Riversley World Heritage Area, which is where I study, um, the, the fossils I study come from. Uh, that one was discovered, I think, 40 or 50 years ago, and someone just noticed it and was like, oh, there's a jaw in that rock, and then didn't really do much about it for a long time. And at the time, there were very few Australian mammal fossils, like no one, just none. And so, yeah, when uh, my supervisor, Mike Archer, sort of heard about this, he was like, wait, we should we should go and look at that then and, like, see see what it is. And, uh, yeah, they went off and found, like, a single block of limestone that uh, more than doubled the number of known extinct mammal species in Australia and continued from there. And are there any hotbeds or hotspots for fossils and... Like, what are the conditions that help preserve fossils? It depends. Uh, like, there's definitely, you need certain conditions. Good fossil deposits form from, I guess, a combination of, like, the right conditions and a lot of luck. Uh, so it can depend a lot on, yeah, what the conditions are like and different, you can get different kinds of conditions as well. So uh, Riversley is a limestone deposit, so all our fossils are just in rock-hard limestone. It, it's literally a rock. Um, and that... Um, Riversley is quite special in a way because, yeah, the whole area is like cast limestone, which is um, yeah, a kind of limestone deposit, but everything's limestone. There's limestone dating back to sort of um, the Cambrian. Um, so. how, my, how long ago was it? The Cam- because you know that, but for me, a Cambrian could be like 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'd have to check the actual dates, but far longer. Like everything I study is sort of tertiary, so um, sort of within the last... Um, well, everything I study has been the last sort of 25 million years and the tertiary goes back a bit further than that. And then the Cambrian, I, I believe, in the 100, like over 100 million years. But So this is when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth or other species? Yeah, even earlier things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we get some fossils in that, but it's sort of, yeah, what we t- most of the stuff we look at is, yeah, the tertiary limestone. So we sort of have the Cambrian limestone and then that's been carved out and within that is um the tertiary limestone is formed Mm -hmm. but because the whole area is so rich in limestone all the water in the area is um lime water it's really high in calcium carbonate so when anything falls in the water the water flowing over the surface of that slows slightly and the calcium and the calcium carbonate will start to deposit as limestone quite quickly um similarly the limestone's really rich the mud's really rich in lime in you know lime water and stuff Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it's just become a really amazing place to, like, hold yeah hold things together and hold them really well, and it's kind of astonishing in that way. So we do get other deposits. The other one I've kind of been to is um, uh, Mergen, which is in southeast Queensland, which is like a mud, like a clay deposit. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this green clay when you're just browsing through that, and you're like, oh, that's just cro- <laughs> crocodile teeth or bits of turtle shell or things like that. Um, so... It can depend a lot, but yeah, Riversley is a bit, I don't know that it's unique. You get other fossil deposits in cast limestone, but Riversley, certainly in Australia, was probably the best fossil deposit we have. It's I think Attenborough or someone visited and said it was one of the top five in the world. Um, and it's just because of, yeah, the amazing um, deposition, the way the rocks are so, the bones are so held together and so well preserved. I have... Um, I did my honours on a specific hole in the ground at Riversley where uh, the bones are like smashed to pieces from like probably rock falls. Um, and so you get this like limb bone, you know, that's like broken into like dozens of pieces. 
and you can see the mud between the cracks, but they're all held together in the shape of the limbo wow. and still in the rock. That's amazing. Yeah. And like such a quality mark from David Attenborough, like Riversley is the best. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's on our, all our, all our uh, you know, promotional stuff forever, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you, you said you visited Riversley and how do you dig for a fossil? Like it sounds like you just sit in the mud and dig through it, but I guess it, it might be more delicate. Yeah, um, that's what I was kind of thinking, like either like mud or like a lot of delicacy. I'm sort of, you know, picturing a bit of, you know, Jurassic Park with, with like the brushes and stuff. <laughs> uh, no, in, at Riversley, we whack it with sledgehammers. <laughs> uh, if the sledgehammers don't work, we use um, detonator cord. So we don't quite go full dynamite. I think they did use full dynamite while they were trying to figure it out. And uh, several fossils lost their lives in the oh, process, no. got kind of vaporized. <laughs> but uh, the problem with limestone, well, it's kind of a it's kind of a good thing and a problem but it's um it's very very hard and when it breaks it breaks very cleanly so uh that means you know we can't really excavate in the field because you'd need like a lot of power tools and it would take literally forever mm-hmm. to do, sort of do um so instead we yeah whack the rock with hammers and have a look at any broken surfaces and if we see something interesting sticking out we're like oh crap Where's the other half? Mm. Uh, and we label those. And then what? because it breaks so cleanly, we can glue those back together. And then when we process the fossils, uh, they come out as one piece because they're broken exactly cleanly. We do have... Um, and yeah, so we do similar things with like the detonator cord where it's not an actual explosive, but the shock of the detonator cord is enough to just crack the limestone really cleanly. We do have things where, you know, um, fossils have been damaged in in the process because when you're drilling into rock you can't tell what's there and sometimes like you know we've got a really nice um skull of i think a kangaroo or something that's got a really like round circular hole right through the top of it <laughs> oh, and that's no. where the uh that's where the detonator cord went in um which is yeah which is not at all what i was expecting but uh then what we do we have these chunks of limestone we ship them back to sydney and we actually dissolve them in effectively vinegar uh, so we use acetic acid, uh, which is what vinegar is, uh, but we dilute it down to about 5 to 10%, which is quite weak. Um, and you can actually just dissolve limestone with store-bought vinegar. Uh, it takes a bit longer than, like our stuff's I think a little bit stronger, but uh, yeah, we just dissolve it and the limestone reacts um, with the calcium, with the acetic acid and just leaves behind the bones, which mm. is really cool. You, we got, got all these rocks in the lab, we're just like, you know, yeah, just bones sticking straight out of the surface. And so you are studying fossils, but you focus specifically on teeth. Why is that? Uh, there's a couple of reasons, and I, I actually would be curious what the dinosaur folks do because all of us, were, teeth fossilize really well because the enamel is tougher than normal bone, and so they're just more likely to survive all the processes that happen prior to fossilization. Um, and for mammals, teeth are really, really unique. So I don't know how well it works for, say, some of the dinosaur people, because I know a lot of dinosaur identification is done from limb bones and skulls and other things. I don't think they can use the teeth because they're just little pegs, but I'm sure mm. they have a lot of teeth. <laughs> uh, whereas, yeah, like mammals are, can be identified entirely off teeth. If you've got a, a specific animal and you've got the right tooth, sometimes a single tooth can get you to species. Normally you want 
a bit more than that, but um, yeah, they're just, I don't know how many people have spent time like looking at like the surfaces of their teeth in the mirror, but uh, you know, our teeth at the front are pretty boring, pretty flat, but if you look at the back at the molars and premolars, they're covered in little bumps. And all those little bumps can be used for identification um, and to see, you know, we can compare these bumps to other bumps on other animals and be like, oh, do we think these are related? Um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's something that just happens to work really well for mammal paleontologists mm-hmm. is the teeth are well-preserved and the teeth are really useful, whereas, um, you know, something like, say, frogs, which don't have teeth, uh, they get identified off, like, based on their hip bones instead. Um, but you then need the hip bones to survive. That's really fascinating. And what type of information can you get from teeth? Like diet or like what does the shape tell you? Yeah, so obviously, yeah, we get a lot of diet information from teeth, which is um, super useful. It's good to know what they ate and we can do like sort of broad things like something that's grazing on grass versus browsing versus browsing leaves versus like maybe more of an omnivore and insect eater or carnivore or how would it translate to the teeth shape broadly like i don't need every specific (laughs) type but like do carnivores have more pointy teeth yeah basically and carnivores are a really good one because they have they generally have what's called um a pair of like carnassials and so these are like two like blade-like teeth two on each side one on the upper jaw one on the lower jaw and they basically work like scissors where they sort of cut um, cut the meat up and if you compare say you come across a pet cat and compare it to a pet dog like both of them have carnassials but a pet cat which cats are more obligate carnivores they really require meat they sort of have the carnassials and not much else whereas dogs have the carnassials but they also have some dentition that's not like not like ours but it's a bit flatter and it's a bit bumpier and it's a bit better for eating other things because dogs can you know, do a little bit of that kind of omnivory. And then, yeah, you can compare it to um, that big, like, that, like, big blade structure for cutting versus, like, um, uh, like a wombat, which has a very, like, incredibly flat tooth for grazing. And, in fact, the, um, the wombats we find in the fossil record are often the teeth are so worn that it can be a little hard to identify them because mm-hmm. grass has silica in it and the wombats just wear them completely flat. Um, they like sort of grow, the teeth just keep growing up continuously mm-hmm. and the wombats just keep grinding them down. Uh, but yeah, that really flat surface where they're just trying to grind up something that's super tough to eat. Um, and then, yeah, you'll get things like, um, you know, uh, like browsers. So like like the possums, um, I see a lot of this where they've got almost um, the tops of their teeth look like two W's stacked on top of each other, Whoa. Uh, which is like the blades and cusps. And so that's sort of quite good for like, that point and then the blade of the W is quite good for like cutting the leaves up into like chunks, mm-hmm. but the overall top of the tooth is still relatively flat because leaves are easier to read than grass, but it's still vegetation, it's still tough. So they need something to, they need something pointy to tear it, but then they need to still grind it down and to eat it. Mm-hmm. And you said you can distinguish between different species based on their teeth, but you also said like, for example, cats and dogs have very similar teeth and may I say that even some marsupials have similar teeth to cats and dogs so how do you decide that a species is its own species based on the teeth and not just very similar like based on its diet how how do you distinguish between those two things yeah so it is it is an issue with like yeah the 
that can, that way the evolution can converge on different things. But um, I mean, for an example, between say the marsupials and the placental mammals like us, if we look at say a dog and then um, the Tasmanian tiger, it's so they both have those really like thylacines. Yeah, Tasmanian tigers look a lot like dogs, um, and they have they have a similar sort of dentition. They have those carnassials. But what is interesting is it looks like the common ancestor of um, uh, placental mammals and marsupials probably had four premolars and four molars. And so then when we follow that down the branches, marsupials have four molars and three premolars at most. They then can lose some. And um, uh, placental mammals will have up to three uh, molars, but up to four premolars. Mm. And so if you look at the which teeth actually make the carnassial, those cutting meat blade teeth in the in the um, marsupials, so things like the Tasmanian tiger and also the Tasmanian devil, they use um, a pair of molars because they have a longer molar row, whereas uh, the dogs tend to use a molar and a premolar mm. because they have a longer premolar row. Uh, so that's obviously based on like the entire dentition, but we see those kinds of connections, I guess, all the way through time. So it does rely a lot on like that having those like missing links or whatever like you can't yeah bones don't change super fast in the fossil record and teeth are bones so um if you're looking at a tooth and it's similar to something else you might be able to be like well okay these these two animals are both grazers but one of them's use developed say the tip of the w well they're both browsers and one of them's developed the tip of the w from this specific part of the tooth but one of them's actually transitioned over a different part of the tooth and so you might have like one of them might have yeah this this big cusp forming part of the w and the other one might have that cusp but off to the side and sort of vestigial and not really used and they've used a different cusp to form like the same shape so they're getting the same answer but they're using different processes to get mm -hmm. there and if we have a complete enough fossil record we can see those processes and you're focusing on two possum groups right um can you tell about them yeah for sure so i'm there are a lot of possums there's uh 10 known families of possums uh six living and four that are extinct so too many for me to focus on for just my phd so i'm looking at um one group that's entirely extinct. Uh, they're called the ectopodontids, um, and they're super weird. The other ones I'm looking at are the petorids, which are, are still around today. Uh, they're like the little gliders, so the sugar glider, yellow belly glider, and also the um, striped possums that we find up in New Guinea. Uh, but yeah, the ectopodontids are my yeah, weird extinct group, and they're actually a really good example of this, like, you know, how do we determine relationships without like through teeth because when they were first found they were so weird that like the people who described them in 1967 were like I don't know but maybe it's a monotreme because we don't really know what monotreme teeth are like so if you look up their like paper where they're described like normally in a taxonomic paper you'll have like the systematics where it'll be like this is the order that this is like the order they're in this is the family this is the whatever and it just says like you know question mark <laughs> like literally in the paper it says question mark monotremata <laughs> And then it just says, new family, and off they go. Uh, and it took, I think it was 19 years later, where they were, the actual paper was published, where they were put as possums. It was actually a book. Um, and the year after that, the reason that we knew that was published, which was they found another possum, another extinct possum group that was like 
halfway between the um, phalangerid possums, so the brush tails, and uh, these extinct weird ones. But yeah, they were just, they're just bizarre. It was basically the, a problem of like a lot of what we do in paleontology is comparison. Like we're comparing what we see to what we see around us living and to other fossils. And when we found these, when these weird possums were found, they didn't look like anything else. Did they have like a star-shaped tooth or something? <laughs> so they almost looked like um, a double rack of plates in the dishwasher. <laughs> uh, so if we look at like normal, like a sort of, who says what's normal? But if we look <laughs> at more like common teeth that we see, um, I mean, obviously our molars are quite, our molars and premolars are quite square. And if we compare to say even other possums, they'll often have like squarish to heading to triangular upper teeth. Um, and then like rectangular sort of lower teeth, but, um, these teeth will be sort of generally longer than wide in the jaw. Whereas the Ketopinone teeth were like way wider than long. And instead of having sort of like four to six main cusps with blades coming off them, they had sort of a dozen. And yeah, instead of having these like more classic patterns we might expect where um, you have, uh, yeah, you might have, like, say, the W shape of a browser, which we see in a lot of possums. Um, yeah, instead of that W shape, it was, yeah, like, just, like, lines straight across, like, legitimately, like, looking at two, like, rows of plates and a dishwasher stacked right above each other. They just looked like that, um, which is really weird. Uh, there's nothing quite like it in, there's nothing at all like it in any living mammal at all. The only thing remotely similar is uh, another extinct group called the multi-tuberculates. They have a similar sort of like, I guess, plates in a dishwasher look to them, but they're actually orientated dif a different way. So in the multi-tuberculates, the uh, plates are lined up so that the plates are going sort of across the jaw, whereas in mm. the ectobodontids, the line of the plates is like in line with the jaw. Mm -hmm. So they're still quite different in a way. Um, yeah. And what what do you think they were eating? That is the question. <laughs> um, look, it's most it's something I'd quite like to look into. It's most likely, I guess, to be something like sort of grains, uh, where they needed a lot of complex surface area for um, grinding. Like, if they were eating anything too soft, then like, why did they need these massively complex teeth? Um, but if they were eating anything really, really hard, then you know, well, if they're eating something, say, uh, like, that was, like, hard but small that they were always eating in the same place, you would expect to see where in one area. Like, one of my colleagues found a Dasyromorphian that was um, eating snails, and so he was seeing really specific where where they were using their teeth to crack open snail shells. But the worn ectobodontic teeth I've looked at are worn really consistently across every surface of the tooth. So it's a bit weird, and it's great, because suggestions so far you know, published have included things like, yeah, like grains, um, insects. Some guys said specifically caterpillars, like as distinct from insects. <laughs> is like, the caterpillar niche <laughs> is underexploited, and I bet that's what these guys were doing. Uh, there was like otter-like niche. They didn't bother to... I'm like, I don't know if that means like fish or what. Um, but uh, yeah, fruits, leaves, um, basically everything's been suggested. I think something like... That sort of grains thing is most likely. Mm -hmm. um, 
if it was something like seeds that they were cracking open, again, we'd expect more like distinct wear patterns in specific wherever they were specifically cracking them. But there's not that many octobodontid teeth. Um, so like overall, like in total, like there's a lot of species, but there's not that many actual specimens. And almost all the specimens, not all, but most of them are just individual teeth. So because we don't have a really nice, accurate picture of how, say, the whole jaw looks, um, upper and lower, in, say, an unworn individual versus a more, an older individual that's had somewhere, that makes it hard to tell. There's one set that's been found where it seems to be the, the complete molar row altogether and all quite worn, only the lower. So that's interesting. But, yeah, there's just not enough and I'd like to do yeah a little bit of work seeing if I can compare what they were doing because whatever they were doing was specific enough that they kept these complex teeth and they it worked because they were like around for 20 million years we sort of see them up here in the late Oligocene sort of 24 million years ago and they were still around in the um, Pliocene at sort of two million years ago so it was working <laughs> and so can you tell about a bit about your second group that you're studying and how or what information do you get from comparing the extinct species to the current living species yeah for sure so yeah studying um the gliders which we see around today a bit and very very cute and fluffy and very tiny very tiny Spent a lot of time looking through the microscope at their How feet. How tiny? <laughs> uh, so, like, the whole um, skull. Um, like, I'm, I'm looking at um, a couple of, um, yeah, modern species where the whole skull is sort of, um, you know, less than two inches long. Oh. Um, and so in terms of the individual teeth I'm looking at, because I, the, apart from the third premolar, the incisors, canines, first premolars aren't that informative, so I don't really look at them. So in terms of, like, the, like five teeth I'm looking at they're all less than two millimeters long so so a lot of microscopes <laughs> yes a lot of microscope work and a lot of um I've had something like CT scan as well so I can see them but they're so small that you might I might have lost some detail there too so yeah lots of staring through microscopes um but yeah so one of the issues I guess we have with uh these fossil species is we're distinguishing them based on uh differences because most um, fossil mammals are known only from teeth. We're distinguishing on differences based on teeth. If you compare that to what you know, sort of people doing taxonomy and describing modern species do, they don't. They don't do that. What, like, why would you? If you were trying to distinguish, you know, you know, the eastern grey kangaroo from the western grey kangaroo, why would you describe its teeth? It has so many other features that are much more useful. <laughs> uh, but that means that you know, it's well, how much then do teeth vary? Like biology is variation um and so how much do teeth vary like within a species how much do they vary between species like how much can they vary i guess over space and time as well you know even though they're they're bones and you wouldn't expect them to change that much they actually can vary a fair bit so yeah i can't do this with the ectobodontids because the family's extinct and the closest living family is also extinct and by the time i've gotten to the next closest living family i'm not that similar to an octobodontid anymore but for the patorids because they are living i'm planning to yeah i'm currently looking at uh some a couple of living species that are in the same genus so i can see how much 
variation happens like within one species and then how much variation happens between two species that are still in the same genus and therefore still quite closely related. Um, and then I can compare that to what I find in the fossil record in terms of yeah how much variation would we expect to be within this one species because um yeah a lot of paleontology seems to be kind of an elaborate vibe check like <laughs> i reckon that looks different <laughs> I, I, mean, I reckon that's pretty different um and maybe less so at species level but certainly as you go further and further up it's sort of like you know what what do we actually say like how much variation is enough for a genus mm-hmm. and how much variation is then enough for like a subfamily or a family or whatever and that can be yeah, quite difficult. Um, it's quite difficult even with living animals. But when you take that back to the fossil record where all the soft tissue is gone and most of the skeleton is gone and your understanding of the time period has been like stretched out because there were these were like time averaged and we can say that this is like 24 million years old or 12 million years old or whatever. But like that's a long time and things are evolving constantly. So... Yeah, it's basically to, I want to yeah, do a comparison to see, like, well, can we apply these this living, the, the variation in these living ones to the variation in these extinct ones and maybe come up with results that are a bit more reinforced, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what can these fossils tell you about the history of all Australia? Or can they tell anything? And... Maybe even can they tell something about how species deal with changing climate and like can you apply the information you get to current current events? Yeah, it tells us a lot about like I guess how Australia has changed. So one thing I find super fascinating at Riversley, one thing that's I guess quite special about Riversley is it's this single deposit that's made up of the hundreds of sites that span sort of from like twenty four million years ago to twelve million years ago, and that's really rare to have such a continuous picture of like time and so we can we actually see these animals evolve for instance um wombats today have uh unrooted teeth so our teeth have roots wombats don't have that instead the teeth just grow continuously to combat the abrasion from the grass uh wombats 24 million years ago had rooted teeth mm. and we see that change at riversley um particularly as um the area around Riversley sort of starts to dry out and more grass would have been appearing and that kind of thing because, um, yeah, Riversley sort of far northwestern Queensland, like sort of south of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Um, and I think about 15 million years ago is when that sort of started to dry out and become a bit more like open forest and grass rather than dense forest or even rainforest that we see in early Riversley sites. So, yeah, we see these really cool, like, evolutionary changes over time and we can see, we can be like, well... This is what we think happened to the Australian environment and do we see that reflected in the animals and what are these animals doing? What environmental shift are they responding to? The other thing that I'd be quite interested in looking at in terms of things like climate change is um, during the Miocene there was an event that was called the Middle Miocene Climactic Optimum uh, or the MMCO and it was basically a period of time where over about 2 million years uh, temperatures rose by about 2 degrees Celsius. Which is kind of relevant to what we see today. <laughs> yeah, a bit. <laughs> and uh, Riversley covers this whole period. So there's been some studies looking at like the changes in animals, but it's difficult because you might be comparing, you know, apples and oranges if you just got like, you know, a fossil deposit that's from before the MMCO and one that's from after. 
whereas Riversley has got fossil deposits from before, during, and after. And I think um, the possums could actually be a really good indicator of this because, you know, possums obviously is a broad group are really adaptable. There's a lot of them, but as we see, unfortunately, in like heat waves and stuff, they can, they can, you know, die off. They can be really affected by sudden shifts in the climate. Um, so yeah, I'd be lo- interested in looking at that in more detail, but certainly there's already been from like studies that have happened um, and from just preliminary data out of Riversley, which hasn't been like published on, but just like, because we have these great data sets of like tens of thousands of specimens representing hundreds of species, like, you know, we run the numbers and yeah, we see this distinct, like massive just drop in um, diversity mm-hmm. um, as we go into the MMCO. And even though um, the site we're using, Allen's Ledge, that's from during the MMCO, it's a little bit different to some of our other sites. We want to be a little bit careful about drawing like straight conclusions because it's um, it's a bit unique. It seems to be um, averaging from a much longer period of time. Like it sort of it took much longer to accumulate than other sites. Um, but even if we were off by and you know an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude, there's still a significant drop in biodiversity. Um, and one thing that I guess is interesting, if grim with that, is okay. So we see that there's definitely a drop. We see it at Riversley. It's been seen at other places around the world during the MMCO. And this was a temperature change that was only that was was only about two degrees, and it was over a couple of million years. So it's certainly relevant and interesting to look at um, as we stare down the barrel of yeah man-made climate change. But whatever we see in the fossil record will be worse. Uh, will be will be will, it will be better than what we're about to see because the yeah. ta- the change took so much longer to happen. Yeah, uh, like it was. It was sudden for the fossil record. Uh, it was sudden for everything living there. That's why a lot of them died. But compared to what we're doing now, it was pretty chill. So, closing off on a bit of a grim note, but um, <laughs> do you have any advice for anyone who is looking into paleontology or just into science? And you can keep your your answer as broad or as narrow as you would like. Yeah, well, I guess for paleontology specifically um different fossil deposits are generally managed by different um organizations so if you have a specific kind of animal a specific time period you're interested in um it'd be good to see you know what fossil deposits are like that in australia and then like what or institutions are like managing those deposits so like i've partially fallen into mammals because unsw is doing a lot of work with riversley uh and i can't study dinosaurs at riversley because they were dead by then. Also, I think mammals are really cool. But similarly, you know, if you, you wouldn't want to end up at somewhere that's only studying, say, Lightning Ridge, if you were interested in studying, like, all of our really cool mammals, because there's not that many mammals out of Lightning Ridge. It's mostly dinosaurs. So I guess, yeah, uh, that kind of thing. And, I mean, in terms of more broadly, I I don't know. I feel like I kind of just fell into what I'm doing because I just picked things I was interested in. So I think that's always good. I did a really sort of fairly broad degree and was like, oh, there's actual like paleontologists here and went with that. And my experience has generally been that like, yeah, there's people at all these universities and stuff that are really interested in these really specific things. So if you have something you're really interested in, just follow that and see if you can find someone who's happy to teach you more about it. 
That's some great advice. Um, thank you for being on our show, Antonia. Thank you for having me. This was Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. We'll be back with another science story in a week. Bye for now.